the Road, the podcast series all about facing failure, overcoming difficulties, improving our research culture, and so much more, all set within the higher education and research environment. If you're joining us for the first time, then you're welcome to listen to these episodes in any order, or pick and choose the ones that interest you. But I do recommend listening to episode one, which is a short introduction to this project, first. That episode outlines what we're trying to do here, how the project came about, why we use the language we use throughout the episodes, and a few other technical bits, such as funding and ethics as well. Although this podcast was made as part of my work as training coordinator for graduate students at the University of East Anglia, I'm not a professional sound engineer or radio host, and all of my guests were volunteers, recording from their own homes with the equipment they had to hand. Please bear with us if the episodes aren't always quite as polished as professional podcasts. The message they convey is what's important here. Speaking of that, I hope you enjoy today's episode and it gives you something to think about, either now or in the future, it inspires you to try something different, or it makes you feel less like the only person in the world when you face setbacks or difficulties in your work. If you have any feedback or comments about this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Contact details are in the show notes. Show notes have been created for this and every episode. They contain links to as many of the books, people, websites, or other resources mentioned by our interviewee, combined with some of my thoughts and notes. Show notes for every episode can be found at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast. It ties into uncertainty in that, you know, and it ties into failure in that by being flexible, by not actually having expectations that things are going to turn out a certain way in the first place by collaborating with others and communicating freely by prioritizing relationships with people um, all of those things allow you to take where failure happens and just pick it up and change it and kind of move on rather than assigning any particular blame to it because it never gets to that point because you're not finding out at the end that something's gone wrong. That was Cara Langford, a PhD student in the Norwich Business School at the University of East Anglia. Today, Cara shares with us the story of her PhD to date. She started in October 19 and has found herself making a massive change to her research direction and methods in response to the COVID pandemic. Although Cara's PhD challenge was linked to the current, as of our recording in mid-2021, COVID-19 pandemic, the core story behind it, starting down a path and finding that the project no longer fits your values or you couldn't get from it what you want, isn't pandemic specific. And I've seen this situation crop up many times. So I think her message here is a timeless one. And her ability to deal with the situation with self-awareness, humour, perseverance and trust in her own ability should be inspiring to many. Cara also brings her business background to the topic of failure, sharing processes and theories that can change the way we view research projects, whether they're going right or you're facing difficulties. I absolutely loved these fresh takes on how we work. This was just the sort of thing I was hoping this podcast project would throw up. I hope you enjoy it too. Hi, Cara. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, happy to be here. 
Oh, it's so nice to have you. And do you want to get started by introducing yourself to the listeners? And um, I like to start with a big question. So who you are and uh, what you do and how you got to be there. So let's start with a life story. Okay. Yeah. So who you are, what you do and how you got there. Okay. So yeah, my name's, uh, my name's Cara Langford. Um, what I do currently is I am a PhD. PhD candidate uh, at the University of East Anglia in the Norwich Business School and I am part of the ITOM group which is uh, we always forget what our own group names are which sounds really bad but there's so many acronyms to remember information technology and operations management Um, and that's the kind of research group that I am am part of in my PhD candidacy. Um, In terms of how I got there that is a big question and quite a long story. Um, so essentially, I didn't kind of follow the quote unquote traditional um, path of going to university uh, at the age of 18. Um, I actually um, went into uh, further education So I did really well at high school, uh, achieved really well there. And then I actually moved away from the town that I I lived in where I grew up, which was a small Victorian seaside town called Hunstanton. Um, And I moved to Norwich um, and I went into further education. And this is kind of like, you know, almost a failure in academia kind of beginning, really, in that I... um, Yeah, I didn't really, because I was so young, I just picked kind of subjects that were interesting to me, but I don't think I really connected with them on any meaningful level. And I basically flunked out of sixth form, tried to do college, flunked out of college and just kind of went, yeah, this is not for me. So I went into into work and worked for about 15 years um, in a variety of different industries um, from I did retail work, I did um, working in big massive telecommunications organisations, I did customer service work, um, I was a team leader in uh, in motor insurance um, and then moved through other positions. I worked for the Student Union at the University of East Anglia for a while running their Student Housing Bureau and then moved into further education and was working in a variety of different roles in kind of um, information systems and uh, leadership there. Then I got made redundant from a role I was working uh, at uh, a college as a deputy head of information systems um, and thought to myself, right, what do I do now? So I looked at the different options that were available to me at the time and thought, actually, you know what, now that I've got more of an understanding of what I want to do, because I, you know, gone through all these different jobs and I realised that the two things that really interested me were... um, sort of management information so things like reports writing reports in terms of like the coding and the the kind of programming of reports and that kind of side of things and working in leadership roles with people and those two things really worked for me so I was like okay you know sat there and thought what do I want to do now do I want to go and 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 stay in work or do I want to look at other options and one of those options was uh, to go to university in my sort of mid to early 30s so me and my husband had a chat about it and went hey you know what it's feasible we're in a comfortable position to do it let's go and do it so I applied to UEA to do the business information systems undergraduate degree as a mature student um, and got a place on that did that uh, managed to come out with two awards for um, 
uh, uh, overall performance in my second and third years um, and came out with a first um, and went, okay, you know what, like this, I'm quite enjoying this academia thing, like now that it's something that I'm actually, you know, a topic I'm interested in and passionate Mm. about. Um, and then uh, applied for a studentship um, with UEA to do, well, I applied for applied for funding with uh, SENS as well, the South East Network for the Social Sciences. Um, didn't get that one, but did get the one for uh, UEA funded through the Social Sciences faculty. So I did a research of master's um, in which I got a uh, distinction and then started the PhD. So I know that was quite a lot, but I'm, you know, because I'm actually now approaching 40, I have quite a bit more backstory, perhaps, than people who have followed that traditional path. No, that's really interesting to hear a background, actually, that's quite different from most people we've spoken to. I think in definitely when you're in HE or in an environment where most people have have started off with a degree, it can be quite interesting or it can be quite common to to think that sort of the qualification is a qualification is what you need. I definitely remember I had a conversation a couple of years ago with um, a careers coach I was working with at UEA and I was talking about something I wanted to do. And I was like, so I need to get a qualification in that. And they were like, mm, but you have lots of experience. You know, it's like it's not always that the qualification is the answer. And, and you actually you do now have lots of qualifications, but you started off working in sales and or retail and then did loads of other things and progressed you know to what was clearly quite a high up management position deputy head of information systems I think you said so yes correct yeah that um or just to remind people that there's not always one path yeah absolutely and I think that that's I mean you know we're talking about you know talking about the kind of topic of 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 failure and I think that the fact that I had achieved so high in my GCSEs, um, I mean, like not ridiculously, but, you know, I'd achieved well in my GCSEs. The fact that I moved away from where I was and then went into originally to do A-levels at a sixth form. The fact that I wasn't achieving wasn't because I wasn't capable of doing it. Clearly, um, it was just because it it wasn't engaging for me. It wasn't really, I was doing it for the sake of it because it was kind of the thing that you did. And actually, I reflected on it and went, you know what? I don't really know what I'm interested in and what I want to do. I mean, computing science was much more in its infancy at that point in time. We're talking the mid 90s, you know. Um, So, I mean, not in its infancy, but, you know, not as prolific as mm. um as it is now um so I hadn't really had the opportunities to engage with the computing sciences um beyond using a BBC computer and logo the turtle to draw a picture on the floor that was pretty much as much computing science as we you know we got so um so yeah I think that for me the right decision was to take that point of quote unquote failure to achieve and go, okay, well, maybe the reason that I'm not doing well at this is because it's not the right thing for me to be doing right now. And so I made the decision to go, well, I, I don't want to put any more energy into this. Let's go and, and work and earn money and have fun and, you know, kind of do stuff. And all, you know, a number of the friends I made at that point in my life were at university um, rather than than working. But 
that was the right decision for me at that point in time. Hmm. And it raises the the point, I guess, that if things aren't working, so whether that's complete failure or just that things aren't going quite right, that it it is about stepping back and not taking it too personally because it could be the situation it's not that you are a failure or that something that you are the cause of it it can just be that you're not in the right place or the right fit or the situation isn't right for you that's what it sounded like this situation was um yeah you just you wasn't the right time and place and so it's about taking getting some some distance on it I guess I keep using depersonalized but I don't think it is depersonalized it's still a personal experience but just about trying to reflect and analyze on the whole situation Yes, and I think that a big key thing there that you're that you you've come into in failure is about it's about reflection and 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 reflexivity. And certainly over my life, I've become better and better at doing that and at being kind of more self-aware of when I need to make those choices. I don't think that you know, looking back at the age of seventeen, eighteen. I didn't see it that way. I did put a lot of pressure on myself at the time to try and do well and was quite frustrated and upset that I wasn't achieving. It's the hindsight that allows me to look at it and go, that's because it wasn't the right place for mm. you to be. You, It wasn't the thing you were passionate about. It wasn't something that engaged you. And the decision that you took to go into work um, allowed that allowed me to try out different things uh work in different positions find out actually through experience what am I really good at what do I enjoy and that turned out to be um problem solving I worked in a number of roles where I was like I say kind of like team leader or I worked one of my sort of first call center roles was working in um for a a very well-known large telecoms company in a department that dealt with kind of billing issues um and I worked my way through there to the point where I was um essentially a complaints manager because I was very good at figuring out problems and I liked being able to get hold of something and dig into it and resolve you know those 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 issues that customers may have had with services um so that's kind of you know I I I learned that that was something that I was really good at and that really interested me through doing it in work experience and then that translates into academia because you know now I find these kind of you know I'm looking at, at problems um you know things that occur and I think okay well why is that and what can I look at and what can I find that will give me more information that will help me to comprehend this thing and understand this problem not necessarily solve it because I work in I'm, I'm my PhD is dual discipline social science and um and computing science and solving social science problems I mean yeah that's not really, <laughs> I think, feasible, um, a feasible uh, uh, thing to think that you can do. But I think that, that the skills have translated, you know, across then into when I eventually did come into academia. Um, I could take that experience and, and apply it to this context. You, um, It sounds like now you have developed quite a reflective practice and I've been surprised at how often this has come up across well I shouldn't be surprised but it did surprise me a bit through a lot of these interviews people have you talked about that skill as key to them getting over failures or difficulties and I know part of it does just come with experience and 
I, I get, you know, guess maturity and life experience. But are there any things you do when you have something that's not going quite right or a difficult time? Or, or how have you developed that skill over time? Oh, wow. OK. I think that... Um... I mean, some of it has just yeah. just simply come with age. I think that the ability to be self-aware has developed um, just simply through experience. But actually, I also think that something that um, that really kind of uh, relates to to, to to this reflexive plus this reflective and reflexivity is that um, I have an anxiety disorder um so I have it's 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 uh, diagnosed as anxiety with depression um and um I've I've had it for you know quite a long time you know 15 years plus that I've had the diagnosis and I've gone through um kind of different types of therapies that I've tried and I think that one of the types of therapies that I've found that's worked most well for me with the way that my um anxiety manifests is uh talking therapies so talking things through and a lot of that talking therapy kind of practice is about reflecting on a situation, about thinking about why did I feel the way I feel? Why did I react in this way to this situation? So a lot of that has actually come out of my management of my own um, anxiety disorder. Um, and additionally to that, I also, through, I mean, this through... Um, going to university so I did my undergrad and then I discovered that um and it is a bit of a long story but essentially I also have dyspraxia and I got a diagnosis during the year that I did my master's through um educational psychologist of, of being dyspraxic and that for me was a massive thing in terms of having an understanding of um, a reason why I did things that I did and why I behaved in ways that I behaved and that really enabled me to go hang on a minute literally just framing something differently having this frame of actually you're not clumsy or forgetful or disorganized or whatever you have this thing that you have dyspraxia which means that you are these things are happening for you know for a reason or whatever that reframing of of the thing took it from being something that caused me a lot of pain and 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 upset to something that I could just kind of almost laugh at and say oh okay well you know that's fine you've broken that third mug in a week or you know you've double booked yourself for something again or whatever and and I could be much kinder to myself and that really kind of drove home for me the fact that how you know you frame a situation and how you react to that situation can have a really big impact on you know how you then come out of that and how you deal with that you know kind of moving on so I think those are two big things that have helped me to um uh like develop that reflexive practice and that 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 that, that reflective um yeah behavior over you know kind of my life 
thank you, first of all, for for sharing that little honest snippet there, because I think it's little little stories like that that speak to different people about different experiences. I think it's not even for people that don't have access to or perhaps a reason to access sort of the official um Talk, you know, talking therapies for a for a medical reason, there is definitely something in, in talking about it, about in addressing failure, isn't it? And that's come up with other people, people saying it's about normalizing it, it's about saying this went wrong, you know, especially in like a research environment, you know, just not instead of just, it's very easy to keep quiet that, yeah, you also spent two weeks struggling over a problem or, or two months or whatever. And, and so I think that's something that anyone can take away from it that that just that talking is a therapy whoever you talk with it doesn't have to be a professional absolutely and I think that what you said there it's really really important to me and a lot of people have said this to me over kind of uh, you know my academic career um and kind of uh, other because like, I work in partnership with industry quite a lot as well still because I have those contacts from um from previous work so I, I think being candid about these things is really important. It's like the whole kind of, you know, that Instagram life thing of you only see the p- picture perfect Instagram mm. pieces of life and you're not seeing the reality of what's going on in the background. And I think absolutely that that's important in any work context is, you know, whether it's research, whether it's work, whether it's whatever, being somewhere where you are comfortable to say to others, exactly how you are feeling and exactly what you are experiencing is really really important and that's why um as well as doing my PhD I do also work with a um sort of digital solutions organization a local one and one of the things I love about that company is the fact that um people feel able to really be honest with each other and uh, I think that that's part of the kind of culture of um, the area that my research is in which is is agile software development um, part of that is um, actually about people and having conversations and supporting each other and that is is incredibly important to have those conversations uh, you know it, it can't be perfect all the time and it, that's okay I'm really glad that you brought up your work because I had in my internet stalking before we recorded. <laughs> oh, hello. I, 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 I try, I try, I don't, I don't do too much, mainly because I want it to be a conversation led by whoever I'm speaking to. Um, but I always like, um, like to look people up so that I can just, you know, get, get a couple of questions. And I saw okay. that you were working. And so I was wanted to ask you about it, but I never want to bring things up without, you know, people might not want to talk about certain topics so I guess yeah I wanted to ask you about balancing work and your PhD are, are you doing your PhD full-time um what's the like how are you finding balancing the, the two things so yeah I am doing my PhD full-time um I'm actually I mean I'm in a very very lucky and privileged position that I'm actually choosing to work as opposed to needing to for any mm. reason um again perhaps because of having work history and also my husband who has supported me throughout my 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 travels through academia um I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it without him um but I'm I actually choose to work so I do um essentially um 
uh, a number of hours a week uh, with a, uh, a local. Are we allowed to name check on this? I don't yeah. know. Like, yeah, if you can put to... links in. You can, <laughs> you can promo yourself all you want. Oh, okay. Big up the Neon Tribe then. Um, yeah. So I work. I work with Neon Tribe, who are, uh, like I say, a local league. We don't like to say software development because sometimes software isn't the answer to a problem. So we kind of have digital solutions um, that can sometimes be software, but you know sometimes sometimes it's something else um and uh yeah I work for them and I've worked for them since the start of my undergrad um because I think it's really important to keep a grounding in industry for my field um if I don't know what's happening in industry I can't make my research relevant to um to industry which is 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 for me the crux of, of of what I'm doing and why I'm doing what I'm doing is to help people in that field of like I say it's, it's sort of agile software development solutions development digital you know kind of products or however you want to label your particular thing because different people like to say it in different ways but uh, but yeah so and in terms of balancing it yeah I mean it's it, Neon Tribe are a fantastic organization to work for they're very flexible with how you know kind of I work based on what they have that they need doing that is within my areas of expertise um, which is primarily kind of um, database stuff I love databases more than anybody should be allowed to love databases <laughs> give me a database give me a you know give me a, an, an interface with it and I'm I'm well away and happy you know, uh, plonking about writing reports or manipulating data sets. Um, yeah, so so yeah, they they are fantastically flexible, um, and it complements my PhD more than anything because that way I I'm able to have that 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 grounding constantly uh, in industry, and that actually relates to uh, a a lot of why I had to and chose to completely change my entire research nine months into my PhD. Which could be uh, the next topic of conversation then. I did have to um, I did have to stifle laughing out loud when you talked <laughs> about loving databases and I was thinking <laughs> back to last night um, we were trying to make a decision about a most simple holiday decision like do we leave on a Monday or Tuesday and I was like should I make a spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> that's how I kind of came into this was I I was working for uh, somewhere that was using uh, spreadsheets and access databases and then I was fiddling around and thinking oh how could I do this better and how could I learn more and do more things and I ended up teaching myself um, how to write um, SQL which is a language that's used to kind of create manipulate and do work in databases and that was kind of where I fell in love with programming and um data um was 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 actually through a process of um working through different kind of stages of um so beware you may end up falling further into the <laughs> into the um yeah into that aspect but yeah so yeah I do I do love I I, I don't mind spreadsheets but I love a good database it's like the uh the spreadsheet is the gateway drug to <laughs> yes yeah is the gateway drug to Microsoft Access, which is the gateway <laughs> drug to uh, to SQL, and then yeah, yeah, definitely. I will be aware. Okay, <laughs> tell tell me about your 
your PhD then, your changes, your challenges, what's been going on since you started? Wow, okay. Well, so, yes, yeah, so I started my PhD in October of 2019, um, back in those heady days where we didn't even know the word coronavirus particularly well um yeah so i i started in yeah october 2019 um and having done my masters um and looked at uh, so i did a research masters which is a bit different to like um a msc or something like that or an ma in that it's mostly about learning and understanding different research techniques so you do a lot of projects with different techniques and then you get your main kind of project that i did for that which was a piece of research about um the concept of performance management uh in agile software development so i did a number of interviews for that and i did a survey and through that i started looking at different aspects of performance management and kind of was keying into my niche essentially what i was going to do for my phd um you know the, the the infamous gap that you're looking for in order to justify your existence for the next three years and and, and the money um so yeah i decided um um, was talking with my supervision team and, and looking into it and I really wanted to key into the aspect of skill development and career development in agile software um, organizations so for the first kind of nine months um, I was doing my background reading um, I was thinking about my research methods I was you know putting together my research plan looking at my timeline all of that in preparation for uh, the probationary review that we have um, around nine months in so I was doing all of that and it was April uh, 2020 was was basically when I was submitting this kind of initial kind of where I'd been at, uh, in the first nine months. And um, as we all know, the global context rapidly changed over that kind of period at the beginning of 2020. And um, I did my probationary review where I talked about my research. And yeah, then everything shut down everybody started working from home which isn't really massive problem for a lot of uh people in the tech space they we're kind of used to working remotely so that in itself isn't an issue so I had my probationary review and I was already starting to think mm, okay how is this going to work but I just kind of you know for that point I soldiers on and 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 and, and did uh, presented what I'd, I'd planned at that point in time took some time after that probation review to reflect on okay like how can I do this research in the current context how can I do participatory action research in a remote context you know what tools are there is there anything in terms of precedent for people doing research like this and there, there is a bit people have done online participatory action research and it has kind of worked um but because I was actually working in an organization at the time, I could see all of the complications that were coming out in terms of communication and working practices and people getting used to it and also priorities. That was a massive thing. People's priorities completely changed. And I was thinking now, do I push ahead with this research in this new context based on the fact that a the things I want to talk about and investigate and work with people on to improve their working lives 
aren't really happening and also aren't really what they want to do and what's important to them right now and I kind of like had this it was almost like a kind of I'm a very um empathetic person and I was kind of thinking if I was in that position what are my priorities what am I thinking about and I was like this is just not gonna work in the way that it would have worked because of the priorities that people have right now and the data that I'm going to get from this isn't going to be useful for what I wanted to do with it which was to try and and think about ways that I could help improve people's uh you know kind of skill development and career progression because it's not relevant to people right now and this data is just not going to be what I need and I'm going to come out of this with a PhD on a research topic that's going to be so impacted by what's going on right now that it's not going to be useful anymore and it's not going to be be it, it you know there's going to be so many limitations and mitigating factors um that I kind of took that step back and went right okay what do you plow ahead with this and end up with something that isn't really what you're looking for or do you change do you be agile you know and and go somewhere else and do something that's reactive to the current situation and the current needs of people and so that was what I decided to do I spoke to my supervisory team and I said look I know this is a big thing I know we're already you know the best part into my first year but I actually think that we're in this situation now that we're in and I proposed a change of topic. I already had an idea. I didn't just go, I don't know what to do. So I I, I said, okay, I want to look at how this radical uncertainty um, has impacted on an industry that, so the tech industry, um, in which a lot of organisations use this agile software development kind of methods and frameworks that are supposed to make them able to deal with uncertainty better um and my my supervisory team said yeah that's probably not a bad idea the whole thing has completely changed from what it was when I started my PhD has that been a bit of a scary process as well as an exciting one I imagine I mean starting again a a year down is is a big decision to make not starting again sorry you didn't start completely from scratch but making a big pivot yeah making a big pivot I mean yes definitely it wasn't something that was done lightly but it it, like you say it's about that 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 kind of I guess when, when we're looking at failure again it was a case of if I if I kept doggedly going down the path of what I already decided to do, I couldn't see me having, I mean, I could probably still get a PhD. I could probably still do research and because remember that, you know, um, it's that whole thing of like, just because you don't get significant results doesn't mean that that's not interesting. You know, I mean, I'm not a qualitative, I'm not a quantitative um, scientist particularly, um, but yeah, you know, no significance is in itself potentially significance. Um, so I could have continued going down the route I was going, but it was more, like I say, for me, it didn't sit. It was a gut feeling thing of 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 this is not going to achieve what I want to achieve. And yes, it was a big decision to to change it at that point, but. It was also, yeah, 
And I kind of really hate this language in a way because it's like, oh, look, there's an opportunity and you can make those opportunities from failure. And it sounds trite, but there was an opportunity for me to look at something, a phenomenon that um, in a way that was not available to me previously. And it, it, it seemed as though it made more sense to me to go down that route than yeah like I say kind of um continued trudging in in the direction that I was being obstinate and and going in that direction I don't think would have would have got me um some to you know something that was actually useful uh to people which is ultimately my my goal is I want to try and come up I want to do research that enables people to understand themselves better and work together better and for organizations to be able to um understand their their kind of people um uh so that everybody can just be happier really it's about sounds like it's about um you really knowing yourself so as you just said there you know you know your values you know your why and it wasn't that your original path was completely scuppered right as you said you could have kept going with enough caveats of this happened during covid you probably would have got a phd out of it because people understand the situation and so there is something in you know that whole like oh i've started something should i should i quit should i give up on this because we put as society quite a lot of kudos sometimes on, on carrying on don't we whereas actually there's there's bravery and and relevance and importance in saying well I could carry on but this is even better and it might be hard work but it's worth pursuing this and it doesn't therefore mean that the first thing was wrong or even failed it's just that it was time to try something else yeah absolutely and I think you're right that certainly there's that British trope isn't there of keep calm and carry on um which is printed on tea towels mugs and t-shirts uh, all over the uh, country um and um and and yeah I uh, I I, it's not necessarily the right decision to just, you know, it, like when I was 18, it wasn't the right decision for me to just keep, you know, keep, I could have repeatedly tried to achieve, you know, in further education at that point in time. But it's about being self-aware enough to say, hey, you know what, actually, this doesn't. And it is a bit of a gut feeling and it is to do with values. And I think that there is kind of that kind of you know like I said I'm a very empathetic person I my values definitely mean that I would have felt like trying to continue with that research that I wanted to do um would have potentially put the people that I was working with in a position of um that I didn't feel comfortable like trying to put people in and I know people can volunteer to participate in research and I know it's not compulsory and I know they can withdraw at any time and all of these things but people will still feel obligations to do things that they've already agreed to do when perhaps actually it's not the right thing for them to do anymore because of that attitude of like you say just kind of carrying on even though actually maybe it's not really where you want to be and because of that 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 kind of empathy i could just i could just sense that it was not important to people right now mm. and it's hard enough as a you know when you're researching people um i mean 
I'm not in a field that's particularly um, sensitive or has any real kind of um, big, I think sensitive is the right word, you know, I'm not in a field with it that, 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 that particularly has any vulnerability yeah. um, in the people that I'm working with. But everybody was vulnerable at that point in time. Everybody was uncertain. Everybody was going through things and it didn't feel right for me as a as a researcher to to continue down the path that I was that I was I was following so so yeah I think values definitely played a huge part in why I took the decision to do what I did even though and unfortunately this is the uh I, I the altruist in me even though it meant on my personally putting myself uh, in a, you know, putting myself and my work back uh, a bit, but it just felt like the right thing to do. How have you handled that? Because you clearly have made a decision that was right for you, your values and how you want to interact with other people and, and everything you've just said, but you don't work in isolation. You have, you know, your PhD cohorts, colleagues, there are people that you you see who are started the same time as you and now will be in some senses ahead right yeah absolutely Um, and so and how how do you manage to like keep your eyes on your own page I guess like how do you manage to to know that to to not compare yourself to others and because I guess if that was me I would probably it would occasionally make me feel a bit um you know a bit panicky not panicky but but it's worrying, isn't it? Or at least it's it's a bit unsettling when you're now not at the same stage as peers and such like. Yeah, but I think that yeah, I mean absolutely. I'm not I'm not where I would have been with my I would be coming to the end of my cycles of uh, the actual research at this point if things had gone to uh had gone to the original schedule. Um I mean I with, certainly with a PhD, because it's not so much, you know, with an undergraduate, you're all doing the same thing, um, more or less. Um, with a PhD, you're all working in fields. I mean, yes, we're all, you know, all of my colleagues are part of the Norwich Business School or part of the Social Sciences Faculty, if you want to look at it wider. But we're all kind of working in different fields and looking at different things. And... I don't think that they are comparable. I don't think you can compare the research that I'm doing directly to, I don't know, somebody that's, I mean, a lot of my colleagues in marketing and finance, particularly in finance, I I really don't understand what it is they're researching at all. Um, I'm just like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, Watch their presentations and I'm like, nope, that meant nothing to me. It has maths. Um, So, yeah, it's like comparing apples and pears, as the saying goes, you know, I don't, I, 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 it's just it's not comparable so I it just doesn't I don't really worry about it that much because everybody's journey is going to be individual and you know I have chosen to work as a social scientist quite deeply with people and behavior and organizational behavior and therefore um that is in itself intrinsically uncertain because people are complicated so yeah it 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 doesn't really I don't really think about it that way to be perfectly honest I will work at my own pace um I'm quite comfortable with that and with me being done when I'm done 
Um, and I mean, I did. Uh, that luckily, we were very lucky that there were a round of funding extensions um, given to account for the circumstances, um, the extenuating circumstances that people may have had in addition to the consequences of the global pandemic. And um, I did manage to achieve uh, successfully apply for that. So I do have a little bit of a buffer in there anyway. Um, but uh, but yeah. I, I don't know I don't I don't worry about comparing myself to to others I'm just you do you I'll do me it'll be done when it's done um on because my supervisory team I mean I do have to say my supervisors have been absolutely fantastic um I have a split supervision team over business school and computing sciences um so James Cornford is my supervisor and Pam Mayhew is my secondary supervisor and they are both just fantastic people to work with and again because I've always been honest with them because I've always been candid if something's happened or there's been a problem or all all the other things I have had some unfortunate um you know kind of uh extenuating circumstances over the past year but as long as you tell people and you're honest about it you know they they should understand and I'm lucky that my supervisory supervisory team do that's nice. That's it's such a strong inner confidence is what I'm hearing. And is that do you think that's something you've always had or is that also just something that's developed with life experience over time? Yeah, no, I think again that's life experience. I definitely wasn't super confident, you know, in kind of my uh, uh late teens and and early 20s. There's there's certainly a number of situations there where no, I don't think that I was but I've definitely reached a point. I think perhaps that is one of the advantages that I do have. It was like, for example, um, the probationary review, the number of my kind of peers who were, who, who, you know, come in and get really stressed about their probationary review. And I'm just kind of sat there going, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine. I'll just have a chat. I'll talk about what I'm doing and, you know, that'll be great. And uh, it was, it was fine. And I didn't, you know, I kind of didn't really worry about it that much, whereas everybody else kind of seemed to be having a bit of a, a panic. And I was just like, ah, it's fine. It's just chat about your research. It'll be okay. So I think maybe it is an age an experience thing that I just don't seem to I don't seem to place such uh you know kind of um I don't want to say value that's not wrong because it was a really valuable I I, I don't yeah it's not the end of the world it's not like sometimes stuff happens life happens and you just have to deal with things one of my my favorite things um I think um in terms of what I was talking about earlier about failure and about kind of reframing situations and I really can't remember the person that said it um originally so I I might have to attribute them and, and try and find it later um just taking the word deadlines the word deadlines it has a connotation of something being really important and if it doesn't happen a really bad bad thing's gonna happen but in reality if you miss a deadline does actually like an incredibly bad thing happen or is it just a bit of an inconvenience for somebody or does it just kind of like you know yeah it's a bit annoying that you didn't get that report in on that day or, or whatever but actually 
putting all that pressure on it and using that language makes it worse. So I prefer the term sad lines in that, you know, yeah, it's a bit sad that you didn't do that thing at that point. But at the end of the day, you'll get it done. You'll carry on. It's it's not as much of an issue. And and reframe, reframing it with that language just kind of changes the the impetus that you put on that particular thing. So, so yeah, just like don't worry about it as much I mean I know I have an anxiety disorder so for me saying don't worry about it sounds really <laughs> like not taking my own advice but but yeah it's yeah it, it like I say doing a PhD as well people want to help you they they're interested in your research they actually like you know my super my my probation was great because I had a really good chat with one of the you know the assessors and they gave me some more papers to look at and some more ideas to think about and it's about collaboration and conversation and those like moments it's not a competition you know it's it's about helping each other out so yeah it just doesn't worry me I when you've just there talking about deadlines and it was just making me think about some other conversations I've had in previous episodes where we we talked about not using the same scale or perhaps the same frame of reference I can't quite remember the terminology now but basically not judging everything on the same like it's level like viewing everything in the same way and I think that can be true there of deadlines of of sometimes we do have to have a deadline like the final um, PhD submission running out of money thing for for some people is a deadline because they have to pay their, their rent or their mortgage but then there are things in between where we're using that same terminology and you're right it's perhaps not we need to view things on different scales and different levels of importance and if you go at everything in life with the same approach like that's stressful isn't it because yeah. not everything is that same level of critical and I think that can be quite easy in perhaps in perhaps no more so in academia but perhaps I guess I'm just thinking about it from that context of when we're used to critically analyzing everything and putting so much detail into it because that's what you need to do with research right you need to think about every detail and then it becomes almost easy to overthink that other aspects of life and and put that level of detail into everything yeah yeah definitely it does become it does become really easy to, to to do that and I think that this is where so this is where the kind of agile stuff comes in in the the whole thing with like with agile and using agile ways of working is that you're breaking things down into much smaller more manageable workloads you're kind of constantly it's a very reflective process it's very much about doing things and then looking at what you need to do next and about like you say different levels of importance it's about saying okay so what are my priorities here and which of these things that I need to do and if that thing gets done earlier then I can add in this thing and if it doesn't and it takes longer then that's fine I can kind of juggle things around and and, and re-account for stuff um and I think that maybe that's just that's kind of where my mindset's maybe changed in the through working in that way and through looking at things from uh, looking at things through a lens of that things are going to change anyway if you're already expecting that there will be change and that the you know that things are going to go all you know wibbly wobbly timey wimey <laughs> to uh, steal a Doctor Who phrase um then 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 it's not so much of a problem when it inevitably does hmm. do you want to give us a little brief 
um, I was going to say idiot's guide. Let's not say that. Outsider <laughs> guide to um, to Agile because I've, oh. I'm really interested at, of having different people look at their approach of failure. So I've spoken to someone from the philosophy department and they went into the philosophy of failure. And we've talked with a couple of people about like sports psychology and failure. So, and it, when I was reading about your background and things, it did strike me as like, oh yeah, it is your it is your grounding in this in this technique, I think, that brings some different perspectives. So just a brief introduction to Agile, um, what it is, and then and then some of your thoughts that have come out. Of, well, you've just I guess you've just shared how they shape your view on failure, but linking those two together. Yeah, of course. OK, so wow. OK, what is Agile? That's quite a big question in itself. Um, so essentially, the, I mean, and there are this caveat disclaimer academic caveat I am not saying that my version of this is the complete truth and different versions people will have different versions of what this means to them so I'm entirely basing this on what agile means to me Mm -hmm. so um I very much see agile as kind of an overall philosophy of of work I need to really have an elevator pitch for this, don't I? Um, Yeah, Agile is, for me, about being able to react to change, uh, being okay with change, actually, like I say, expecting change to happen, and therefore um, communicating with people when changes happen and... uh, like you know when things need to be done differently um about working in small increments and looking at so you you know you have your big picture you have your thing you want to achieve but it's breaking that really down into much smaller pieces of work and kind of accepting that those pieces of work may change or need shuffling around and that's okay um it's more about the relationships that you have with people than um kind of uh being particularly strict on the processes that you follow um so yeah it's it it is really more of a mindset than than kind of anything else to me in terms of sort of agile as it is primarily known in its software development context um essentially Agile came about as a umbrella term to be used for a number of methods for developing software. So kind of bunches of processes and and ideas and frameworks and so on um, that used kind of iterative development, iterative working. So taking work and doing sort of small cycles of work and little pieces and kind of modular things and putting them all together rather than just kind of having one big long plan in a straight line and then delivering a thing at the end that probably wasn't the thing you wanted at the beginning anyway. So yes, this was kind of used as an umbrella term for for some of these methods of developing software back in the 90s. Well, sorry, late yeah late 90s early 2000s but it was still based on kind of these these principles of expecting and accepting change uh collaborating with other people um and that kind of being a priority over um following you know plans to the nth degree or making sure that procedures were 
you know, tick box exercises of X, Y, and Z. Um, so yes, and there are a vast array of um, prescribed processes and methods out there that exist that come under this umbrella of agile um, that are for essentially managing software projects or just managing projects really um, but I don't subscribe to any of those sort of specific things as being the way I work it is it is entirely the wider philosophy mm. of of it that is kind of how it works for me so it's a, like I say it's a very hard question to just answer what is agile <laughs> because oh my god it's it's different things to different people and it has been used as a buzzword in a number of industries and it ties back into what you said before about values definitely for me there's a whole bunch of of of, of values uh, that are part of the philosophy of of agile working that kind of then yeah ties into it ties into uncertainty in that you know and it ties into failure in that by being flexible by not actually having expectations that things are going to turn out a certain way in the first place by collaborating with others and communicating freely by prioritizing relationships with people um, all of those things allow you to take where failure happens and just pick it up and change it and kind of move on rather than assigning any particular blame to it because it never gets to that point because you're not finding out at the end that something's gone wrong you're finding out when something goes wrong immediately and taking actions to to change that so that you end up with something that is actually what you wanted to do you did great at describing that after being put on the spot <laughs> and I just I think there's so much of that philosophy that that translates over to to academic work to PhD life to, to research I was trying to think of um you know one or two things and perhaps if you have any like not to put you on the spot now but there will be some show notes for each episode so if you have any resources that you think are good starting resources or or good articles whatever we can link them all there for people and it, it was what you what came to my mind was this idea of iteration and you mentioned iterative de development and you just mentioned at the end there about about sort of small steps and not um being sort of tied to this one final end process and there and then that almost I don't really like to say mitigate failure because that sounds like we're trying to guard against anything going wrong. And I think if you have that attitude, then when things do go wrong, it's in some senses even harder to deal with, isn't it? It's about acceptance of things. But I have heard that idea of, of iterative development um, in the last couple of years a few times. And I've definitely been trying to bring that into my own research and encourage that in other students. The uh, like is, is it called lean startup in, in the sort of startup world where it's not about like I've got a business idea. So you don't sit down and make like a logo and a final project product and a website and make 10,000 of your product instead. OK, like what's the first draft of it that you can make and put out there and then iterate? And I think you can do that with research, right? Like be open, discuss first ideas, discuss graphs that don't look finished. Just just keep discussing little steps rather than waiting for something to be polished. And that can be something that I think a lot of PhD students, researchers do as you wait till you have something really finalized to show people. 
Uh, yes, yeah, so um, so Lean Startup, uh, yeah, I have heard of that. I was trying to describe Agile quite generically because I don't didn't want to kind of seat it too specifically mm-hmm. in the language yeah, of software development. Um, but yes, absolutely. Um, Lean is a term that comes from um, the manufacturing kind of industry as well. And it's essentially about not doing more work than you need to do. Because quite often, like you say, if you've got these kind of big projects and, you know, you just kind of get, you know, you say, like you say, you do a logo, you do this, you have a finished product. Well, then actually you might have done a whole bunch of work that you didn't need to do because you find that, the thing that you mm. created at the end was not the thing that was wanted in the first place. Yeah. So by iterating and by being iterative, you take an idea and you say, okay, what is the least work we can do? What is the minimum, they call it the language's minimum viable product? What is the least work that we can do to create a thing to show people and then get feedback on? So you create this small thing and then people say, okay, well, I want it in blue or I want it to have a button here or I want it to do whatever. So then you make that change and then you show them that and then they say, oh, okay, well, now I want this over. So the theory is, is that by being iterative and by doing small chunks of work with constant reflexivity, that you end up with something that is actually what is wanted as opposed to what you thought was wanted but it turns out at the end is not what you wanted at all. Uh, and absolutely, I think that this can be a technique that we apply to research. I mean, not not all the time. Sometimes it is time to sit down with 20 partners and write a huge cross-European grant for, you know, 4 million euros, that sort of thing. But, but often, and especially um, early career researchers, which is, I guess, mainly where I'm, I'm pitching this is is just that what is the smallest step you can take right now and that's still valid and that's still a great step forwards and it's a chance to experiment without the stakes being so high isn't it yes yeah and I think you're right I think that for early career researchers um the the there is definitely uh, far more opportunity to be adaptable, to be agile, and to do things in this way. Absolutely, um, because you're you're whilst you still have a certain amount of processes and things that you have to follow, you are perhaps less tied to some more specific kind of processes that are more stringent about how you work and about what you deliver. Um, so yeah, definitely, it's something that early career researchers can, can have more kind of space and flexibility to do, and I think that's kind of why I've chosen to to because even before I had the big change in my in my research topic because of the impacts of global pandemic, I was still managing my PhD iteratively. So I have um, a tool that I use. It's a software tool that essentially allows you to kind of create all of these little cards with all the little bits of work on like virtual post-it notes essentially and you can pop them in little columns and you can move them around so there's a very um, prolific method that is often used within sectors that are agile that's called Kanban 
Um, and Kanban is essentially a, it's, it, Kanban, I think, literally translates to card. Um, it's Japanese um, technique that was pioneered by Toyota. And it's a really straightforward technique that is essentially, like I say, sort of like post-it notes on a board. And then you literally have what you need to do, what you are doing, and what you are, what you have done and you start off with a big pile of tasks in your to-do. Uh, you move them into the doing column as you're doing them. And then once you've done it, you move it into your done column and you pick up your next card. And it's a very simple way of managing a project. But you can prioritize those cards up and down a list. You can tag them with different colors. You can, you know, it's like having a massive, massive swathe of post-it notes, but it's virtual. And not only do you then, you know, you can see what you've got to do. You can, if things become irrelevant, you can archive them off. You also have that thing of being able to see what you've done and what you have actually achieved um, over a period of time. And I think that's really important. Sometimes we can kind of lose track of, actually seeing what we have achieved and by having this using this method I'm able to look back and look at my done column and go wow I did all of that stuff um, and I've achieved all of that stuff um, you know so I, I I like using that particular kind of technique for managing my work and I think that even you know if you're working on a research project and you know you're having to put in a funding application or if you're you know even if you have certain rules within which you have to work you can still use some of those agile kind of adjacent or complementary processes to manage your you know your individual work that you're doing so and 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 yeah that's how kind of how I've worked with it well, the technique you said was Kanban. What software do you do you use? Is it freely available? Uh, yeah, so I use something called Trello. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, you know everybody knows Trello. Yeah, I use I use Trello because it was uh, it's the thing that I'm most comfortable with. But there are many resources out there for different Kanban boards. Um, there's uh, a website called Miro um which is also like a big kind of generic whiteboard and you can use kanban on there there's there's loads of different sites available that um that provide you can do it with physical post-it notes if you want to if you prefer that that's also something that you can do it doesn't have to be software backed in any way i just having a computing science background do tend towards the shiny tech options because they're what i'm kind of comfortable with and with mobile um hybrid working and hot desking and such like being probably the way forwards across many universities then the uh, the post-it note thing becomes less easy doesn't it much as I I do love a post-it note yeah yeah unfortunately but there are plenty of different options out there for software that can help um you know with working in this way and I, I've even done it so for example my you know my my thesis I've got all of my chapters broken down into bits on my board you know and I can move them through as I'm you know as I'm working on them so I can see different progress on the bits that I'm working on mm. I'm I've been one of the things that I think will help me in terms of 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 the fact that yes okay I have had to kind of reset a bit I am writing you know I started writing 
into my you know into my thesis right at the start of this so I've been iteratively going back and writing sections and putting bits in and yes okay I've had to completely change my method and I've had to completely change my research plan and and, and all of these things but I still you know I've still been going and writing bits of that thesis you know trickling it through over the last couple of years so uh, it's it it it's not going to be such a sort of trudge to to write things up at the end because I'm writing a lot of it up as I go along and I think that's gonna really help me with achieving um you know submission in the time scale that I I would hope to definitely you are the second um NBS student to mention that the sort of living ongoing thesis so it's obviously a technique that is working um, in your area yeah yeah it does seem to be something that yeah is is working for us definitely um and I I, you know it it, it's much less of a looming beast yeah uh then because it's already you know it's already there there's already pieces you know pieces of work in there so it won't it won't be such a big thing once you know I come into that actually I've got all of my you know my analysis and my results now I need to write write it up I will put links to all the resources and things you mentioned in the show notes for anyone that's interested in reading more. And if um, if a book doesn't exist called the Agile Thesis or the Agile PhD, Cara, this is your like this is your niche. I I just see this being a whole overlap that should be exploited if it's not already. So um, I'm sure you don't already have enough on your plate with a, <laughs> with a PhD, a job, two dogs and a garden. Um, and two cats. just write a book on top of it yeah um shall we start to wrap up because definitely I'm thinking it might be time for lunch oh samesies so just to end with a couple of rapid fire questions that I've been asking everyone if that's okay Okay. yeah your answers do not need to be rapid fire take all the time you want the first one is if you could make one big change within um, within HE or within research to improve our culture around facing failure or setbacks, what would it be? So I'm writing it down as you said it so that I can uh, think on it. Okay, one thing. Okay. Okay, if I could, okay, if I could do one thing or think of one thing that would improve our culture around failure and facing setbacks, it would be to, and I think we already touched on this earlier, remove the, I don't know, stigma slash tradition slash whatever it is around honesty and candid conversations um if we can speak truly and freely to each other about the things that are happening and the issues that we have then actually we will get things done more productively so yes any of that fear of judgment of you know um of, of of what you know other people might think or how they can they can may perceive you if I could remove that then I think that would massively improve and that's not just really in HE and research that's just in life in, in general life. Absolutely. yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. I agree. and finally if you could tell if you could go back and tell you at um 
let's say you 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you could give yourself one piece of advice that you now know, what would it be? Uh... <laughs> I'm sorry, the first thing that came into my head, which does not want to go in the podcast, is buy Bitcoin. Um, no. Um... <laughs> it's at least more positive than Twitch now, which at least three people have said. Um, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to you 20 years ago, what would it be? Okay, all right, I think I've got something. I think that probably the piece of advice that I would give to past me would be to uh, believe in myself more, I think, because I perhaps didn't really understand my own intellectual value perhaps maybe I did have somewhere in my subconscious the fact that I had um you know made I'd made that decision of okay you know further education not working let's go and get a job maybe there was something in there that made me think that I was not perhaps as capable um as I actually am I definitely yeah don't underestimate yourself because I definitely have underestimated underestimated Mm. myself in the past and you know what even now I've got like you know I'm looking at my wall and I have two awards for best overall performance in my year in my undergrad I have my first class honours uh, in my business information systems degree and I have my distinction in my master's and I still sit there and think I'm rubbish. So, you know, maybe that would be my thing would be, val- you know, you, you know, value your, your yourself and um, believe in yourself um, more. Uh, you know, maybe see the things in you that other people see in you would be the advice that I would give myself 20 years ago. But to be perfectly honest, the reason it's difficult to answer that question is because I'm actually really happy where I am now. Failures enabled me to get to where I am now and, and I'm happy with where I am. What a positive point to wrap up then for the end of the episode. Thank you, Cara, for sharing um, a perspective that just, you know, from somewhere completely different and um, and then we could meld that into, into research. And it's just, I think, a, a really refreshing topic to discuss, which has also had lots of little practical tips and hints, which is a sort of perfect mix of, of sort of theoretical or or broad discussion and practical tips so thank you so much for your time today unless you've got anything else you want to leave people with we can wrap up there no thank you so much for um you know you know for inviting me to have this conversation and I think that I'm really pleased to be able to give a perspective from somebody that's had a slightly different journey Mm -hmm. uh into research than perhaps the kind of yeah that that typical path and that you know it's still something that you can do if you episode but remember you can find lots more links and resources over in the show notes at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast